You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Wednesday, July 29, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with today's stories, Nick Correa. Thanks, Ash. Gold price today is recovering from a minor pullback yesterday. It remains comfortably perched about the 1950 level. Yesterday, Goldman issued a new report that's on everyone's mind. It raised its 12-month forecast from $2,000 to $2,300. And they explained their reasoning by citing negative real yields and concerns about the dollar's future status as the world's reserve currency. But not everyone is so bullish. There are some naysayers, such as Morningstar, who caution that the yellow metal may not live up to its reputation as an effective inflation hedge. They found the correlation between gold and inflation was very weak, at only 0.07. They didn't include a chart, but they said it was over the past 15 years. But looking back to 1965 shows the correlation is much stronger. It's curious that they chose to start their analysis at a point where the average correlation balanced so close to zero. The correlation only gets stronger as you zoom out on the periodicity. But the true allure of gold at this time is not as a hedge against inflation, but as a hedge against dollar weakness. That connection is what really drives markets, and that correlation between gold and the DXY is unambiguous. And for those saying it's two sides of the same coin because of the Fisher hypothesis, I mean, don't even get me started. Talk about uncorrelated. Switching over to European banks, today, Santander Bank released its Q2 earnings report, stating that they had experienced an 11.1 billion euro loss, the first one in the lender's 163 years of operation. This comes as a result of massive write-downs on the value of several of its businesses, particularly Santander UK, due to the pandemic. The parent had written off 6.1 billion euros of goodwill that remained from the purchases that created the UK arm, and Santander UK have reported that they experienced 74% decline in their pre-tax profits for the first half of this year. Santander have reported 10.7 billion euros in revenue this quarter, down 13% from last year, but adjusted for currency fluctuations, it only dropped 3%. They've also set aside an additional 3.1 billion euros for loan losses this quarter. In the first quarter, they set aside 3.9 billion raising their total to $7 billion. For Barclays, who released its H1 results today, they've set aside £1.6 billion for loan losses, bringing them up to £3.7 billion this year. The amount they've set aside for this quarter is greater than the estimates of £1.4 billion. Barclays have reported a net profit of £90 million, half of what was expected. Similar to its US counterparts, Barclays' earnings had been offset by the 49% increase in trading revenue, from their investment bank side. However, the Dragon revenue, falling 4% to 5.3 billion pounds, came from its UK and credit card divisions. For both of these banks, their capital ratios are up. Santander at 11.84% and Barclays 14.2%. This is an indication of the strength of their balance sheets. Their earnings reports come on the heels of the ECB's announcement to Eurozone banks, calling on them to extend the suspension of dividend payments until at least January of next year. The Bank of England embraced this as their decisions have mirrored the ECB's actions. On Tuesday, they said they would review in the fourth quarter if British lenders could resume dividend payments next year. These sorts of regulations have deterred investors, even as these policies allow higher volumes of capital to remain with the banks. 
Lastly, if you get a chance, check out Jason Buck's interview with Jerry Hayworth today. It's a masterclass tail risk hedging via long dated options, and it's part one of Jason's three-part deep dive into volatility as an asset class. Tomorrow, he'll be speaking with Bastian Ballesta of Deepfield Capital, and on Friday, the great Chris Cole will be returning to update his thoughts on the Dragon portfolio. It's currently on the plus tier, but a cut for Real Vision Essential members should go up on the weekend. And with that, I'll send it back over to Billy Ray and Lewis. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. I guess I'm Billy Ray Valentine. How are you doing, Lewis? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm, you know, since we're uh, we're talking about uh, things uh, that are non-Fed related first, let me just say that um, Nick and I, we were collaborating earlier and I was, uh, we were talking about how you have no idea what a Wolverhampton is. And I, uh, I showed him this tweet uh, about Adama Traore, uh, who's been valued at 135 million pounds in the transfer market by Wolverhampton. And I thought it was a perfect thing to to show you. This is what football is all about, Ash. This is what you need to know. This it, it's a it's a big sport uh, globally. So it's all about the dollars. Exactly. Sounds like you may get uh, picked up by the Yankees on waivers. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tee that up for you as a Red Sox fan, Ed. Right. Yes. So, Ed, so let's jump in. What are you looking at? Yeah, so I'm looking at the Fed uh, by you know most uh, first and foremost because of the, the Fed's decision today. Uh, you know, we actually had a video that came out today that was uh, with uh, a Fed official. Um, it was David Andalfato. We had to uh, pull it because the Fed told us that we're, they were in a blackout and we can't release it until the blackout's over, which is going to be on Friday. But uh, it was what he had to say was very much in line with what you might hear from other Fed officials. For me, that interview is very good in terms of understanding where the Fed is coming from and how to react to it. You know, I, I want to give you a, a, a sort of an analogy how I think about it. Uh, uh, let me tell you how I'm, I'm thinking about it. Back when I was in college, uh, I went to see this movie in the in the movie theater, No Way Out, it was called, with Kevin Costner. This was 1987. So that tells you how far back we're going here. And uh, in the movie... Uh, whenever you go to a movie, you're supposed to have a suspension of disbelief in, in, when you go to a movie. You have to say to yourself, I, I know this isn't real, but I'm going to act as if it is real because I'm going to get something out of it psychically. At some point in the movie, Kevin Costner was doing what he does in these action movies, and he goes to the Georgetown metro station. Okay, George, The Georgetown metro station, I'm from Washington, D.C., doesn't exist. In fact, there was a big thing about why it shouldn't exist, and it was you know, a, a huge furor. As soon as that happened, suspension of disbelief went out the window. I couldn't watch the rest of the movie. The movie was ruined. I hated it, and uh, it, it, just, it just stopped. And so I think the moral of the story here is don't be like me. If you want to make money in the markets, don't be like me. What you need to do is you need to process the information, hear it, have suspension of disbelief. Even if you don't agree with what's being said, you need to understand it because that's how you make money. 
I completely agree, Ed. We've been thinking in sort of parallel tracks. I, I was doing a little bit of thinking about this, and um, I've got a little bit of a historical analogy for you, which is before the recession, the Fed held between seven and $800 billion in assets on their balance sheet. Uh, in late November of 2008, the Fed effectively began QE. They bought about $600 billion in MBS, mortgage-backed securities. By March of 2009, they held uh, $1.7 trillion on their balance sheet, and it expanded shortly thereafter uh, to about $2 trillion, right? In March of 2009, the S&P went down, the S&P 500 index went down to 666. Right. right. And at that point, we heard a lot of voices uh, talking about how the Fed was gaming markets, uh, how uh, the Fed uh, was not able to support asset prices because U.S. equities continued to decline. And there was a lot of philosophical talk about how intervention in markets uh, was terrible for the U.S. economy and would result in lower U.S. equity prices. Now, leaving aside the morality, leaving aside questions of income inequality, leaving to the side uh, for the moment, ultimately the health of the long-term economy and the creation potentially of zombie companies, as many have argued, leaving all that to the side for the moment. You could have gone out when the Fed was, was buying those assets and the S&P 500 was at 666. You could have gone out, levered up, and shorted the Fed. Shorted the Fed by shorting stocks, shorting the US equity market, shorting the S&Ps, buying derivatives, whatever you wanted to do. And if you had done that in March of 2009, you would have gotten your face ripped off. You would have made one of the worst trades in American history if you believed that intervention by the Fed was going to cause chaos in U.S. equity markets. In fact, just the opposite happened for the day. I think the S&P 500 closed today uh, at 32.58. Now, it's a metaphor, not you know about what you know when you when you when you start philosophizing, when you let your view of the world as it should be versus the world as it is interfere with your analysis of markets. It's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what you said. And actually, uh, I, uh, Raul, he uh, had a, um, you know, a, he snuck away from his wife to have a telephone conversation with me earlier. We were talking about this as well. And I said, I don't want to get you in trouble here. You know, he was like, my wife's on the phone now. I can do this. Uh, <laughs> he was saying the exact same thing. He was like, it's not about the world as you want it to be. It's the world as it is. Uh, exactly your words, Ash. And so the question is, is, you know, what is the world that we're living in? What should the Fed do? Because you know how I feel about the Fed, that I'm not completely down with uh, what the mandate is that the Fed has. Yeah, and, and and me too. And look, I would also add at a philosophical level what we do. Look, there are two cable stations here in the U.S., and we all know the names of them. And if you watch them, one every day will filter the news events uh, through the prism of hating the president and telling you how everything he does is terrible. And the other one, not probably not far away on your dial, will do exactly the opposite. They will tell you about how the president is a defender of American values, and they'll filter every news story through that positive light. What we do is different because what we do, Ed, has a scoreboard. There is a price that's associated with assets, and that is what we care about. And we obviously, we have our own personal feelings, but you can't let that interfere with your ability to understand where markets are, where the U.S. economy is, and ultimately about the direction that the data that you're seeing suggests that markets are going in the future. And if you leave the Fed out of that equation, look, the Fed for worse or better, appears to be the dominant agent in this market. I, I can't imagine how you could ignore what it is they're doing. 
You know, uh, so I know you're going to get into the specifics of what the Fed said and what they did, et cetera. Yeah. But let me frame it in terms of how I'm thinking of it and what the implications could be later on in our discussion for asset markets. So I, I have five bullet points that I wrote out. Uh, the one is, you know, we have a terrible economy right now. Uh, the expectation is, is for 35 percent annualized decline in Q2 2020 when the numbers come out uh, later. So that's terrible. And even though we're having a bounce, it's it's going to be a V, but only to a certain level, not all the way back to 100 percent. Now, the Fed is activist as a result. And what does activist mean? It means taking rates down to zero. It means buying up assets. It means not just buying up assets like treasury bonds and uh, mortgage-backed securities. It means doing what's called qualitative easing, credit easing, by buying up uh, investment-grade bonds. So to me, this is a legacy of monetarist ideology, which puts the Fed in pole position. Monetarism says that at the end of the day, we don't really want fiscal activism. We want the Fed to, at turns in the cycle, uh, turn it on and turn it off, because that means that we're not uh, deficit spending. We're not uh, being fiscally irresponsible. So increasingly, however, as a result of this ideology, I would call it, you know, monetarism, uh, there's an array of reasons that people have to be mistrustful of the Fed uh, and of that paradigm, not just in the U.S., but globally, because you hear the same thing in Europe with their negative interest rates and uh, all the sorts of things that they're doing in Europe as well. And ultimately, I think uh, what it boils down to is unelected officials making life-changing decisions for you and I, making the most important decisions about where the economy's headed when they weren't even elected uh, by the people who they serve. Uh, and then the final bullet point that I wrote out to myself was that it's going to continue. It's not over. What we heard today tells you that that they do not believe that their toolkit has been exhausted. So however bad the economy may get in the future, the Fed believes that it can help and they're going to try to do so. Yeah. Ed, you made reference to your own view of the Fed. Could you give us just a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of what your own personal predilections are when you think about monetary policy? Yeah. So I spoke to an Austrian economist earlier, uh, two weeks ago, uh, and I think that what he had to say was very much in line with how I think of it. Uh, he might have gone a little bit further in terms of saying that the Fed shouldn't exist at all. I think, you know, in a perfect world, that's probably true. The Fed shouldn't exist. You shouldn't have a central planner uh, at the heart of a so-called market economy, because obviously, given the Fed's mandate, that's what it does. It's 12 people in a room deciding what the interest rate, the most important lever in financial markets should be uh, at any one particular time, rather than letting the market decide what that should be. So my view is short of getting rid of the Fed altogether, their real mandate is about uh, liquidity crises. That is, you know, to lend at a, uh, a penalty rate uh, against good quality credit in a liquidity crisis. And that's it. Just let them do that. That's their role is to prevent the economy from collapsing. Uh, all the other stuff, uh, I believe, is outside of their pur purview. But that's my belief. It doesn't 
that's not the reality that we have on the ground. And so as a result, we have to look at the reality that we have on the ground and come to decisions about what that's going to mean in terms of asset prices, in terms of the economy, in terms of longer term trends, uh, in terms of economic uh, outcomes like zombie co companies and things of that nature that you were talking about earlier. I believe you just quoted Walter Badgett there from Lombard. That's right. That yeah, right? the Badgett rule. Yeah, that's one of the rules that we were talking about there. I think that, you know, when we looked at QE as an example, I remember I was pounding the table about the Badgett rule uh, back in 2008, 2009, that they were lending, uh, you know, a, not at a penalty rate. They were not going with the Badgett rule. They were propping up these companies artif artificially. They were, you know, manipulating the market. But you know what? Even though I was saying that, eventually uh, we got through that particular crisis. Even though they were doing that, it didn't matter. So ultimately, the takeaway is, is, is that you might want to pound the table on what's right or what's wrong, but ultimately you have to get back to the reality. The reality of this is what's likely to happen, and given what's likely to happen, what are the consequences of those, uh, of those outcomes? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, Ed, talking about getting back to the reality, I saw something on television uh, a couple of months ago that just has been percolating in my mind. It was uh, a community activist and, uh, and a police chief, a major uh, or police commissioner, rather, from a major city. And it began with the police uh, commissioner making a statement, and then they went to the community activist. And the activist said, you know, when everything, uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. In the community where I live, we have failing infrastructure, we have failing schools, we have failing mental health, we have all of these challenges. And when the police show up, you know, they just hammer at these problems, right? Because everything looks like a nail to them. And then they went to the police commissioner. And the typical rule, of course, is that you disagree with the person who spoke. And the police commissioner said, I'm going to shock you. I agree completely 100% with everything you just said. We do have all of those problems. And we don't like being stuck in that situation any more than you do. And the reason that police wind up responding the way they respond is because we're the only ones who answer the phone at two o'clock in the morning. And to me, that is the best metaphor that I've ever heard for the Fed. It is an organization that has been put in a position of, of lender of last resort and of guarantor of last resort for the US economy. And all of the challenges that we see stem from the fact that there are other problems that we have throughout the country and they all get shuffled over ultimately to the Fed to respond because at two o'clock in the morning, in the dark night of the soul, when a recession is raging, the Fed has to answer the phone. I agree with that 100%. I think that's a great analogy. I mean, I, I the 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 way that I put it is the Fed is the only game in town. That's the phrase that I use. Because at the end of the day, even though, of course, we had a massive fiscal response just now, we get that in exigent circumstances. But the Fed's mandate is by law to, ha you know, they have a dual mandate by law, which says to do X on inflation and Y on full employment. And if they don't do that, they're not fulfilling their mission. They're basically forced to do it. And to the degree that they're the only game in town, 
then you're going to get an extreme response as a result of that. And so uh, that's what we're seeing to a large degree. You know, my personal preference would be higher interest rates and uh, less malinvestment, but that's not what we see. So the question now is, is what are the extenuating circumstances? What are the consequences? One, I think that a lot of people have been talking about is the U.S. dollar. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is this concept that the dollar will res, uh, lose its reserve currency status as a result of fiscal irresponsibility uh, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, people talk about Donald Trump and his stepping back from his international obligations as the president of the United States on the other hand. So are, do those have sway? Uh, my view is as they don't. Uh, I, I think we have a chart that I sent uh, out on what the U.S. dollar looked like from 1986 forward. And if you look at uh, that chart for the United States, uh, U.S. dollar, what you see is, is, is that even as, uh, as close back as 2008 or 2010, you know, DXY was much lower than it is today. Uh, we were hovering just above the 70 mark. So one of the things that a lot of people don't realize or they don't remember is, is that, you know, the euro was crushing it uh, when the great financial crisis happened. The, the, the dollar was at a low ebb. And then, you know, massive, there was a massive sweep into uh, the USD as a result of the liquidity crisis. But even then, the numbers that you saw on DXY were in the 80s. It wasn't in the 90s. So we're at a level now that's even higher than it was uh, during the great financial crisis. So I'm not convinced at all under any circumstances that one of the outgrowths uh, of Fed policy is that the United States loses its reserve currency status or it diminishes its reserve currency status. I'm going to talk to two currency experts over the next two days, actually. One here on the Daily Briefing tomorrow, Mark Chandler. And then also in RB Live, I'm going to talk to Andreas Steno Larson about this. I want to hear what they have to say since they're in the currency markets. You know, what's driving the dollar? How far can it go? And, uh, you know, does the Fed have anything to do with that? Yeah, you know, talking about political risk in, in the U.S. economy, let's also not forget on the opposite side of the aisle, we have members of Congress right now today in 2020 who identify as socialists or democratic socialists. They seem to have not gotten the memo about the fact that 100 million or so people were killed uh, by socialism and communism in the 20th century. So there are a lot of political risks uh, coming from all kinds of different directions right now. Yeah, and, you know, how I would put it, you know, uh, putting on my political economy hat is, is that the risk is that when you have unelected officials driving policy in such a public way as the Fed is doing, uh, you politicize the Fed in a way that is irretrievable in certain ways. It creates sort of a, a backlash. Uh, that comes out in ways that, like you mentioned, that is, is that suddenly people think that socialism is a great thing, when in fact, when you see how it was practiced in various countries, uh, the, the Soviet Union, Venezuela, places like that, the outcomes are not necessarily positive. So yeah. that that's the kind of populism that is being driven by having, uh, you know, so-called bureaucrats uh, run the run the policymaking. Yeah. And if you want to know how well socialism works out, ask someone who's actually lived under one of those systems here in the U.S. Uh, and they will tell you what their experiences are. And they probably will not be positive. No. So mildly. Uh, here's the here's the next question for you. What about asset prices? 
Um, this is what I think. And I think that we were talking about this perhaps on Monday. I believe that the Federal Reserve, as the monopoly supplier of, uh, of reserves in the United States, has much more control over interest rates than people might think, that the bond vigilantes are a myth, and that mm -hmm. really the bond vigilantes act uh, via the currency route. And it's not necessarily that the United States is losing its reserve currency status when the uh, currency goes down. It's rather that uh, people would, they're, they're choosing their vigilantism via currency, not via rate. So right. what the rates are telling us in, in right now, uh, even though the Fed has said they're going to continue to be dovish, there's no movement whatsoever on treasuries. What it's telling us is that people believe the Fed. They've looked and they said they've said going forward the Fed is going to keep rates low. Therefore, uh, our bootstrapped yield curve is going to be very flat. We expect rates to be low for a long time. If we want other assets uh, outside the United States, which will give us better money going forward, we're going to therefore sell the dollar, and that's what's right. happened. You know, and, and that makes perfect sense, because when you think about the risk to U.S. bondholders, it's not default. The U.S. has monetary sovereignty. The ability to uh, monetize the debt is always an option. The risk, of course, is inflation. And that speaks directly to the point that you just made with the valuation of the currency. Right. And, you know, uh, one thing when we are able to release the Andofato uh, video, I think that would be interesting, is the concept that one of the other side effects is asset price inflation. A lot of people, uh, you know, I think Powell spoke to asset price inflation today when people were asking him about, he, you know, Andal Fato, he understands that one of the side effects of what happens is asset price inflation. I, uh, Powell understands one of the uh, side effects is asset price inflation. But really, when pressed over and over, the, the officials say that their mandate is to revive the economy. They believe that they can help do that. And that's all they're focused on. Should we believe them? I think um, by and large, yes, uh, we should believe that ultimately their ultimate goal is to stimulate the economy. Just in the same way we should believe that when people who are deficit spending in Congress say their ultimate goal is to help the economy, that that's what they're looking to do. At, you know, whether that's the right thing to do over the longer term is another question. But 100%, if you keep rates really low, and if you massively deficit spend, it's going to have an impact. Yeah, you know, and that leads in uh, precisely to the the topic at hand, which is what actually happened today. So, you know, for me, if you look at the press release that came out at 2 p.m. today, if you want the thumbnail sketch, if you want the TLDR version of this, all you need to do is read the first sentence. And the first sentence is, the Federal Reserve is committed to using its full range of tools to support the U.S. economy in this challenging time. That is the opening of the first sentence. And that really says it all. You know, look, it goes on to say weaker demand and significantly lower oil prices are holding down consumer price inflation. We know that that's part of their mandate. They further say the path of the U.S economy will depend significantly on the course of the virus. The ongoing public health crisis will weigh heavily on economic activity, employment, and inflation on the near term and poses considerable risks to the economic outlook over the medium term. And then they go on to say that they're going to be holding, uh, they're going to be holding rates effectively at zero, zero to one quarter percent. Uh, and then they expect to maintain that target range 
until they are confident that the economy has weathered recent events and is on track to maximum employment and price stability. Interestingly enough, uh, Jay Powell in the question and answer period gave a little bit more color around that. And he said, basically, the pace for the recovery is slowed. Uh, There's evidence that there's slowing job growth, slowing spending, uh, hotel occupancy flattening, flattening, not surprisingly, people not going to restaurants, gas stations, beauty salons, no surprises there. Uh, and consumer sentiment is softening. Uh, and he talked about uh, uh, basically a short, a short, sharp dive, uh, then a rebound, and then a drop. He didn't use the words uh, W-shaped recovery. But, you know, like if you draw it on a piece of paper, what he's talking about is a W and it's really hard to to avoid that. Uh, you know, he went on to say that home sales and auto sales are strong, which is uh, is counterbalancing it to a certain uh, extent. But he says, and I quote, on balance, it looks like the data are pointing to a slowing in the pace of the recovery too early to say how significant and how sustained it will be. But look, he's saying the recovery is stalling. It basically confirms all of the high frequency data points that we have been talking about, you and I, on this show. Well, yeah. And tomorrow we're going to get the jobless claims. And remember, I told you we're going from a factor of like 1.15 down to 0.84 over a two-week period. Two weeks ago, the seasonal adjustment factor uh, basically you know, cut the uh, number of jobless claims by 15%. Now it's going to increase them by 15%. So that's essentially a 30% differential in a period of two weeks, in a period in which uh, Jay Powell is telling you that the, the numbers don't look good. So it's, it's, it's uh, almost automatic that those numbers will go up. And when people see those numbers come out tomorrow, they're going to say, the Fed's gonna turn it on. They're going to, they're going to uh, boost it. What are the Fed's possible outcomes? I think that average inflation targeting is certainly one thing that people are talking about. Yield curve control is the second thing that people are going to be talking about. But I think that average inflation targeting is probably more likely to happen first. Yield curve control is more likely to happen second. None of that's very positive for the dollar over the medium term, especially when euro the euro is doing better because the European economies are doing better. I might add, though, that there is some uh, incipient uh, coronavirus problems in Europe. We'll have to see how that works out going forward. But ultimately, that's supportive of uh, risk assets. Uh, It's not supportive of the dollar. And I think that it's actually supportive of bonds as well, because the Fed is telling you that they're not going to hike rates anytime soon. Yeah, I believe Powell said something today to the effect of we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates. Right. Uh, you know, and to your point, I, I wonder if de facto they're already doing average inf- inflation targeting uh, as we speak. These are the questions about the about the nomenclature here and what is uh, actually being done, in fact, uh, are always an interesting one. You know, final thing that caught my eye, Ed, uh, in, in, in relation to what you were talking about was uh, Powell talked about their 13-3 rule. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was asked directly if the, uh, if the fed had, uh, had any plans to purchase us equities and, you know, it was very interesting. He did this very strong denial, so to speak, saying, we haven't thought about that. We haven't done any of the work. We haven't even thought about thinking about that, but the words he never said were, we won't do it or right. don't believe it's compatible with our mandate or there are statutory requirements that don't allow us to do it. He, you know, and, and if you look at the history 
uh, central bank action, whenever you hear uh, a uh, central banker saying adamantly that we've never even thought about thinking about that, it it's not ruling it out. Yeah, definitely. Let, let me leave you with one last thought that is not uh, Fed related, because I'm still noodling on this right now. Uh, and it had to do with uh, some of the commentary I saw about the dollar. You know, because of what's happening in the United States, the dollar being weak, and then potentially the U.S. losing its uh, global reserve currency status. I don't necessarily buy into that framework. But then I thought to myself, what about debt mutualization in the eurozone? What does that do? Like once it happens, what what what's the what what happens? Immediately, what uh, occurred to me is is that you have suddenly the ability to have a triple A debtor in the in the euro area that potentially could be used as collateral for all sorts of transactions in the way that treasuries are used as collateral for transactions. And once the Europeans cotton on to this and they realize we don't have to do it at the country level, you know, Germany, uh, the AAA, or smaller countries like the Netherlands, which don't have a lot of bonds, we can actually have a massive bond market at the AAA level uh, across Europe that allows us to become more of the reserve currency, I think that will be, that will uh, concentrate minds in the coming Italian debt crisis. If you have an Italian debt crisis, suddenly it becomes a very interesting proposition to mutualize debt if the debt that's already been mutualized, these corona bonds that they've already established, are trading in a way that helps you to uh, get the, uh, you know this collateral for transactions. I think that that's where we're going to be going going forward. So to the degree that uh, there's any sort of global reserve currency status, to me the debate is not about the Fed. It's really about debt mutualization in Europe and what longer term impact that's going to have on the euro. Yeah, that's an incredibly interesting point and, and one that we'll be watching closely. Final point for me, non-Fed related. They're playing baseball right now in Oakland and Arlington, Texas, and your Boston Red Sox are here in New York playing the Mets in interleague play tonight. Yeah, not not a matchup that I really remember uh, fondly since uh, I remember uh, living with two Mets fans in college when uh, Billy Buckner uh, booted that uh, that ball back in 86. So. Uh, let's hope that, uh, we can get it done this year. I I just hope that's not a Bill Buckner, uh, Jay Powell metaphor. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.